0: I want you to think for a moment about a few of the things that maybe really hit the spot for you, things that are strangely gratifying or satisfying when you do them. Maybe things like the lines in a freshly vacuumed carpet or the smell of freshly cut grass in the summer, or maybe the look of your lawn after you've raked up all your leaves and your neighbors haven't yet. And then you remember the wind will blow, and you'll end up raking half of their leaves as well. And think to yourself, they planned that, didn't they? You have to love your neighbor though, love your neighbors. And for me, one of the most oddly satisfying things is a perfect apple. I'm pretty picky about my fruit, you can ask my wife. And Uh, it has to be just right, or I really don't like it. And so I like an apple that is really crisp so that when you bite into it, you get that snapping sound, and you cannot see your teeth marks because a whole chunk has broken off. Some of you may not be able to relate, but I like an apple that is juicy even before you start chewing it so that you have a little bit running down your beard, right? And so you might not know that feeling, but I do, and I like it. And so you get that really juicy apple. I like to eat it after having hiked a mountain with the wind gently blowing, bringing the fragrance, a pine tree, to my nostrils and just the sound of rustling leaves and birds in the air. Like I said, I'm picky about my fruit. It has to be very specific. We all have little things that we find oddly satisfying, but I think that we also have things in our lives that we have gone back to over and over again trying to find some kind of deeper satisfaction only to realize that it can't satisfy, and yet we go back again and again and again and it never quite does the job that we're hoping it will do. The Gospel of John was written so that we could believe in Jesus and that by believing, we could have life in his name. And that life is eternal life, but it's not just life that lasts forever. It's a quality of life. It's a better life that Jesus desires to give to us, life that is fulfilled, that is satisfied, life that is complete in him. You can be satisfied in Jesus I want to begin reading our passage for today. It's in John chapter 4 where we read this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea, which was in the southern part of Israel, and departed again for Galilee in the northern part of Israel. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, or noon, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans." Jesus had been ministering in Judea simultaneously to John the Baptist. The Pharisees began to get suspicious of John. The attention was on him. And they probably began to get suspicious of Jesus, who had a similar ministry to John's at the time. And so that attention was increasing. The hostility began to increase. And Jesus wasn't afraid. He wasn't avoiding them. But he also knew God's plan and his timing for his life. He knew that God wanted him to be ministering, throughout Israel, and so before he had an opportunity to do that, he didn't want to become embroiled in conflict in Jerusalem. So he decides to head north to Galilee, and the shortest route took him through a region known as Samaria. And the history of the Samaritans will be a little bit helpful to us in understanding what's going on in this passage. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament times. The kingdom of Israel split into two. It had the northern kingdom, known as Israel or Samaria and the southern kingdom known as Judah, it was well known that the northern kingdom had turned away from God, and as a result, God allowed it to be conquered by the Assyrians, and most of the population of that kingdom was taken away into exile. But the Assyrians left a few Jewish people, and they had this unique practice to try to keep areas they had conquered under control. They brought in exiles and refugees from all different nations into that region. And so there were some Jews there, and then the Assyrians brought in all different kinds of nations and people, and the Jews began to intermarry with them. And when they did this, they not only intermarried with people who weren't Jewish, they also began to adopt some of their religious practices. Eventually, they came up with a religion that was kind of their own. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament in something known as the Samaritan Pentateuch. And after the Persians permitted the exiles from the southern kingdom, in the south where Jerusalem was, to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, some people from Samaria, who'd been there a while, wanted to help. However, their help was rejected because they were seen as impure as a result both of their intermarriage and their syncretistic religion, and they were not happy about being rejected. And eventually, they formed their own religious traditions, even claiming that there was a new mountain on which people should worship, and a temple was built there uh, on a mountain called Gerizim. And they even, they even uh, began to encourage people not to go to Jerusalem and instead worship on this new mountain in this new temple. A couple of hundred years later, a ruler from Judea and his army came and destroyed that temple on top of Mount Gerizim. And so these are just a few of the highlights from the History of the Samaritans, who were a mixed race, and the Jews, but they give you a little understanding as to why there was no love lost between these two groups of people. The Jews saw Samaritans as heterodox half breeds and avoided close contact with them whenever possible. But Jesus was tired from his long journey and he took a seat at a well at noon as he was passing through. And of course, This was no coincidence. A Samaritan woman came out to the well to draw water. The fact that she was drawing water at noon should tip us off that there's something different here. There's something going on that's not ordinary because most of the time women would go out in the early morning or the late evening when the sun wasn't so hot in the Mediterranean and so it would be cooler. And it seems that what's going on is this woman is avoiding others. Jesus asked her for a drink. That was quite a surprise for her It was a surprise not only because Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman, it was an even greater surprise that he was suggesting that he would drink out of a vessel that a Samaritan had brought and probably had drunk out of herself. And so she expressed cynicism saying, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And that's when Jesus took an opportunity to share the real reason why he was there. Jesus answered her in John 4.10, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman will eventually come to understand what this gift of God is. She'll begin to grasp who Jesus is, and she'll even ask Jesus for a drink, but for now, it's beyond her grasp. And as we so often do, she was thinking of merely physical things, She interpreted living water to mean running water, but she knew that the region that she was in had no sources of running water, at least on the surface. She knew that there was nothing like that around. The well dug hundreds of years earlier by Jacob was the best source for water. In fact, that well is still there today. The woman said to him in verses 11 and 12, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. In fact, it's about 100 feet deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Of course, Jesus was claiming to be better than Jacob, and not because he knew where to get water, but because he knew how to give living water. And he describes what he means in verses 13 to 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That sounds good, doesn't it? A source of water that can satisfy, that you don't have to go back to over and over again, a refreshing that doesn't run out, Of course, Jesus wasn't talking about literal water. He was speaking spiritually, but she still hadn't caught on. Sometimes I wonder if we've caught on. On Thursday, the water main was shut off on Main Street here in Agwam for a few hours, and while there was some work being done, and it caused me to think about what it would be like if we had we didn't have modern plumbing and we had to go to a well to get water and bring it back early in the morning or late in the evening i asked my sons over dinner what they thought about this idea maybe i'd send them out early in the morning before i got up so that by the time i was awake i'd have something to drink right and so i asked them what they thought about having to go to get water and they were not interested in this idea at all in fact they thought that was a strange the most backward thing they had ever heard what a waste of time we have water in our house dad and i Admit that I don't relish the thought of spending so much time and effort on something I've come to take for granted either. Imagine though what it must have been like for someone who had to spend so much time and so much energy just to get water to hear there was a source of water that she could drink from and never thirst again. You have to wonder what she really thought about this. If she thought Jesus was like a cracked pot, a lunatic, what's he doing out here promising water that I'll never be thirsty again? Or if she understood at least at a basic level that he was speaking metaphorically? Her answer in verses 11 and 12 does sound pretty skeptical, if not downright sarcastic. But she was thinking physically. What a disappointment then when she found out that Jesus was just talking about spiritual water. That's not right, is it? It's not a disappointment to find out that Jesus is talking about spiritual water. Historically, people spent a lot of time and effort on survival, and so perhaps they were distracted from the spiritual by the physical. But I actually think we often try to distract ourselves from the spiritual with physical things. We have such conveniences in our lives that we have ample time to think about the deeper matters and spiritual things, and yet many people still avoid thinking too much about it. It's almost as if they are avoiding something, as if there is a thirst in them that is even more real than the need for water, and they don't know where to satisfy it. So they're trying to satisfy that thirst with all kinds of distractions, all kinds of diversions, all kinds of substances and relationships and religious practices, and it just does Satisfy. And so they have to keep going back to the water that leaves them thirsty again. And that was certainly the case for the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well, and he knew that was true for her. And so he begins to draw it out of her. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus is offering living water that will spring up to eternal life to this woman, but he tells her to go call her husband. What a curious thing to do. As I studied this week, I was reminded of where the trouble with sin and marriages all began. We're back to Genesis 3 when Eve was tempted by the serpent to eat fruit from the tree that God said was off limits, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent convinced Eve that God was withholding something good from her, something that would satisfy her. She decided that she would try to be satisfied in the way that God said, no, this won't bring you satisfaction. And do you remember what she did immediately after she had eaten? It says in Genesis 3:6: so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She gave some to her husband, and they both ate. They both sinned. They were both separated from God, and their own previously perfect relationship was corrupted. And it's almost as if Jesus is sitting by a well in Samaria and offering to undo for this woman what had been done thousands of years earlier with the first sin at the fall. Eve and her husband ate and the result was death. For them and their relationship, a brokenness, Jesus is offering living water that will spring up to eternal life to this woman because he knows her brokenness is an example of what has happened to us all, that she is a living example of the brokenness of separation from God and of human relationships. She's broken because of sin. And we should be careful here not to perceive this woman as just a victim, It's true that she was there at noon probably trying to avoid some of the shame of the stigma of all of her broken relationships. In some way, she was a victim, but she had certainly participated in her own sin, as we all do. We are all the perpetrators of sin, and we all become the slaves and victims of sin as well. And Jesus is both meeting an outcast in her brokenness and meeting a sinner in her guilt, And this woman carried the stigma of all her broken relationships. But Jesus was there when no one else was there. She was a cracked vessel. And Jesus uses the imagery from Old Testament prophets to speak to her situation. Places like Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. She had tried so desperately to satisfy her own needs with men, one after another. She had to keep coming back to that well because she couldn't hold on to life as she imagined it should be. The life that she was looking for continued to slip through her fingers, man after man after man. And she finally comes to the well and meets a man, the man, who could satisfy her. Only he was not interested in being her husband. He'd come to be her savior. And in one way or another, we're all like that woman. We are leaky vessels with cracks and splits, and we won't hold water. And the things that we keep trying to fill us up and to satisfy our lives leak out of us, and they never truly satisfy. They don't complete us. You may have gone through relationship after relationship like this woman had, but you're still not satisfied. Maybe it's a sexual addiction or pornography that you go back to over and over and over again and all you can do is go back one more time. It could be the bottle. It could be a love of money. It could be the pursuit of a new identity. And they tell you, if you'll just change your name, if you'll just change your look, if you'll just change your style, if you'll just change your body, and each time you go back to dip into that well one more time, you realize it doesn't satisfy, but you don't know what else to do, so you just keep going down that path over and over, or whatever it is, you keep going that maybe for you it's something that seems innocuous like fulfillment through a hobby that you think will will make you will make you great or bring you bring you joy or maybe it's even something that you think is good like the pursuit of your career and advancing in that and you think this will bring me satisfaction maybe you've been hurt by what you've chased, and you've told yourself, I'm never going back, but like this woman, you find yourself going back to the same place, the same well to draw the same water over and over and over again, only to find it doesn't satisfy. And like this woman, Jesus meets you at your point of brokenness and your shame and your sin. He knows what's going on, gone on in your life. He knows where to find you at noon when you're trying to avoid everybody else. He knows where the well is. You go by yourself while everybody else isn't present. He knows where the well of your shame is and he meets you at the well of your shame. You can't hide it from him. He's the eternal son of God. He's the light that shines in the darkness. He's the savior of the world and he has come to you today to offer you living water. He is not offering to fulfill you by giving you the perfect man, the perfect woman, the perfect job, more money, or whatever else you've been chasing. He is offering something better, something much better. He is offering eternal life. And so the first part of Jesus' statement from verse 10 was answered. The gift of God was living water through his son Jesus. He said to the woman, if you knew what the gift of God was, you would have asked me for a drink. And he now tells her, The gift of God is living water given through me. And if you drink it, it'll spring up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. And so should you. You should ask Jesus for the living water. Stop wasting your time trying to fulfill the brokenness or fill a broken vessel with water that will leak out and come to Jesus for living water. We can't be sure whether the woman was trying to divert the conversation away from such a sensitive and shameful topic, or maybe she was so impressed at Jesus' knowledge of her life that she wanted to bring up a matter of deep religious concern to her. Either way, the woman begins to change the subject and began talking about the right place to worship. It says, the woman said to him, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet.' God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? The theological debate over the correct place to worship God was still happening between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, that theological debate still happens today. Where's the correct place that people ought to worship God? And Jesus gives an answer that neither the Jews or the Samaritans or the Muslims today are ready to give. He gives a unique answer. He said, I told you earlier about the Samaritans' alternate temple. It had been constructed on the top of Mount Gerizim in Samaria, but it had long since been destroyed. And perhaps like some Jews today, the Samaritans were waiting for the right opportunity to rebuild their temple. And Jesus' answer to her shouldn't be misconstrued to mean it doesn't really matter, no big deal, you're just as right as the next person, as if he's just some kind of, you know, Hindu guru saying, you, you go to God your own way. That's not what Jesus is saying. The passage certainly does not promote a vague spiritualism without foundation. He said, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's saying, up to this point, the Jews have been right about where to worship, but that's changing because salvation is from the Jews. He's the Jew from whom salvation comes. But Jesus wasn't gonna dwell here long because the temple in Jerusalem was the right place to worship. It was being fulfilled. It was being surpassed. It would no longer serve as the place to worship God. Jesus was replacing and surpassing it. John three thirty four teaches that God the Father gave the spirit to Jesus without measure. And we also know that Jesus is true. And later in John, he'll even say that he is the truth. So John 4, 24, where it says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth is a reference to worship being conducted in and through Jesus, who has the spirit without measure and is the truth. And as such, the worship of true worshipers is no longer defined by a particular location or a particular building. It is instead defined by a personal relationship with God who is spirit, and through a reception of the truth, and since Jesus is the one who has the spirit without measure, and since he is the truth, there is only one source for true worship. He's the living water, and there's only one place to get that living water. It's through him. To worship in spirit and truth, then, is to worship in and through Jesus. It is encountering the living God and his son, Jesus And like the woman at the well, you and I, we look for answers to life's big questions and difficulties, and we try to fill in the cracks which life seems to leak out through. We try to fill those cracks with religion. Sometimes we use religious beliefs and habits to create a kind of stronghold that keeps other people away from us or helps us to hide our sin and our hurts. People use religion as an excuse to harm others, to push others away as a cover for their lies and their greed and their gossip and their hatred. And Jesus' answer isn't to abandon faith. It's not to abandon worship or belief in God. It's not even to abandon a practice of worshiping God, if that's what we mean by religion. Rather, he is simply inviting us to relocate the place of worship and build it on him. He invites us to encounter the living God and worship in spirit. That doesn't mean undefined spirituality, whatever you'd like to make of it, using crystals or yoga or affirmations or manifestations or or what we make up and go along with as, as terms of our emotions because that would mean denying the truth. No, Jesus invites us to worship in spirit and truth. That is to worship through him. He's the revelation of God to people. And when we meet Jesus, we meet God, we may not meet Jesus at the side of a well, but we do meet Jesus through the living Christ as he's preached in the gospel, as we hear the word of God, as we read who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit works and we meet Jesus because he is alive. And today, the Spirit of God works through his word among us and he draws us to worship Christ. So worship in spirit and truth is worship that is living like living water. It's worship that comes from an encounter with Jesus not just from a religious expression but from knowing him personally who gives the spirit and is the truth. It's not dead, it's not dry, it's not dull. When we come together to worship the Lord, our worship shouldn't be dead or dry or dull. It should not be the rote practices that we learned from past generations. Those traditions can sometimes be helpful to teach us truths about God. But we should not imagine that it is merely going through the motions that makes it worship but that our worship should be alive because we serve a Savior who is alive and who gives living water. And because the location of this worship is not a mountain, it's not a temple, it's Jesus, there's something really profound that you need to know. And you'll probably, when I say it, think, oh yeah, that's obvious, I've heard that before. But it's really important that you would think about it and you'd apply it in your life. Because the location of your worship is not a temple, it's not this building, it's not Jerusalem, it's Jesus It means you can worship anywhere, anytime. And what Jesus wants this woman to see is that when she leaves the well, she can continue to worship God, whether she's at Mount Gerizim or she's in Jerusalem or she's in Sychar, her own village, or wherever she goes, she can have a living relationship with God, and she should, and this is true for you too, You should have a living relationship with God through Jesus because worship is not defined by a location. It is defined by a person. It is built on Jesus. If you need a location for worship, that location is the solid rock of Jesus Christ, and you stand on him, and he's with you because he is the spirit of truth, and when you go, wherever you go, he is with you, and so you worship him, which means that you don't make Sunday mornings your time of worship. It means you make your life your time of worship. It means you don't make this place a place of worship. Though we want you to come and worship here, the Bible commands us to gather as the church, and we ought to do that. But it means that you don't section off this place or this time of week and say, that's when I worship, that's where I worship. But you say, Jesus is alive in me and my life is worship to him. You worship in spirit and truth. And this should cause us to ask, Have I made my worship too much about its form? Is it too much about my preferences? Have I confined worship to a bit of singing on a Sunday or do I worship Christ with all my life? Have I built walls with my worship to keep others out or does my worship push me to sit by wells and encounter broken people who need to taste the living water that I claim to have tasted? And this leads us to the last portion of this passage. John 4, 31 to 42, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Like the woman at the well, the disciples were looking only at physical things. But Jesus was busy with spiritual things, with the will of God. I wonder how much of what God wants to do in us and through us we miss because we're so focused on external things. But Jesus left us an example that is different. The disciples were worried about food. Jesus referred to Deuteronomy 8.3 and told them there was something even more important for life. It says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus seemed to take this too literally for the disciples' liking. I think he takes it too literally for our liking. He seems to actually mean I am getting some kind of fullness and satisfaction from doing what God wants more than the bread you brought me from town could ever satisfy me. Because Jesus lived by the word of God, he was able to discern God's will and knew that there was a harvest to be brought in. That is, there were souls that needed to be saved. But that wasn't just Jesus' work. He called his disciples to participate. And he calls us to participate in this work as well. He says, "Sent out laborers ahead to sow and to water. And now he calls you to participate in the harvest. How many of you are excited, looking forward to Christmas already? Anybody looking forward to Christmas? Anybody know how many days? Anybody doing the countdown? Anybody? 50 days. As we, had a, we had a young lady in first service who knew. She, she, you think you're excited. She is excited, okay? 50 days. And just like we have countdowns until exciting events, they had sayings and countdowns for their big anticipated events. They were saying four months until the harvest, but Jesus was saying that the spiritual harvest was right now. The seed had been planted and watered, and now Jesus was bringing people into the kingdom. Think of our region, the Pioneer Valley. It may be the most post-Christian region in the United States, we know from reports, but God has not abandoned this field. In fact, he placed us here, you here, me here, Think of the rich revival history in this area of the country, the first great awakening, the second great awakening. Think of the rich history of this church, almost 120 years of preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. Think of the laborers who have gone before us or the brothers and sisters right now in other churches in this valley, laboring on God's behalf for the work of the gospel. The seed has been planted. It has been watered for hundreds of years and there is a harvest ready to be brought in. Do you know what happens if grain is not harvested on time? It has increased risk of disease. The crop can get too starchy and no longer be valuable, and eventually the harvest can rot on the stock. We can't let the harvest rot in the field. Church, we need to lift up our eyes. There is a harvest to be brought in. And we could make all kinds of excuses. Think of the excuses the disciples could make. We're in Samaria, Jesus. These people aren't even Jews. They don't worship at the right place. They've intermarried. They've disobeyed your laws. They don't even have the right Bible, Jesus. We should be going to the Jews, Jesus. Think of what we could say. Man, the reports say that this is the most post-Christian place. People are leaving the church at an unprecedented rate. They've, They've gone, they have no interest in it. We better hunker down, we better keep ourselves safe, but Jesus stands among us this morning just like he did among his disciples and he says, do you say four months? And then comes the harvest. I say to you, lift up your eyes. The harvest is ripe. The harvest is ready to be brought in. And as a church, we must be a church that says, we're ready, Jesus. Our eyes are lifted, Lord. We wanna bring in the harvest. We wanna be about your business. We can't let the harvest rot in the field. We must be the light of Christ to people. Yeah, yes, it might be the most post-Christian place in the United States, yet there are friends and family members, and neighbors, and co-workers that need you to be like the woman who went back into town and said to them, come and meet Jesus. Share your story, invite them to church, be the light of Christ to them, sit by the well and share living water with broken vessels who are coming to try to scoop up another scoop of water that they won't be able to hold to. but don't let the harvest rot in the field. You should participate in the harvest. What does that have to do with being satisfied in Jesus? Do you remember what Jesus said? My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. I wonder if sometimes as Christians, we feel that little twinge of dissatisfaction even in our own spiritual lives. Not because Jesus is not available but because we have not taken God's word literally enough where he says, there's food to eat you don't know about. And if Jesus' work and will is to bring in the harvest, perhaps the reason we sit unsatisfied in our own spirituality is because we have not entered into the spirituality of Jesus who sat by wells to bring in the harvest. Maybe, Christian, what we're looking for is not an experience in a service, Maybe what we're looking for is to say, Jesus, here's my life. I'll sit by any well you want me to and if you'll bring me people as I meet them, I'll share with them the living water that you put in my life and maybe then you would understand what Jesus meant when he said, I have bread to eat that you don't know about. To be satisfied in Jesus, you should ask him for living water. You should worship in spirit and truth and you should participate in the harvest. I'm gonna give believers an opportunity to respond in just a few moments in prayer today but first, I want to speak to those who may not have put their faith in Christ yet. Perhaps today you come and you recognize that like the woman who came to the well in Samaria, that you're a broken vessel. And I don't mean that as if you're different than the rest of us. We all are before we meet Jesus. And you come and you recognize that like her, you've dipped into the same water over and over again to try to fill yourself, to try to satisfy yourself, and you can't seem to hold it. It's like trying to scoop water up with your hands and you watch it fall out. There's nothing you can do about it. You're trying to be satisfied, another relationship, another job, another career, another step up the ladder, a little bit more money, another hit, another bottle, and you're trying to scoop up meaning for your life and satisfaction for yourself, and it's running out of your own fingers. And today Jesus has come and he sits by a well. He sits by the well of your shame and your hurt and your past your guilt, your separation from God. He sits where no one else dares to sit and maybe where you won't even let anybody else know to sit because you won't tell them what's going on, but Jesus knows. He knows and he's come to sit by your well today. And he says, if you'll ask me, I will give you living water and you won't have to keep coming back to this well anymore. This well of broken relationships, this well of offense and anxiety and fear and hurt. You don't have to come back there anymore. I'll give you living water. Jesus not only met us at a well, Jesus met us on a hill. It wasn't Gerizim, it wasn't even Zion, it wasn't the temple. He met us on a hill outside the city, a place of shame. A place called Golgotha, Calvary, where he died on a cross to bear the shame and the sin the guilt that you carried, and He bore it. He took what you owe God, and He paid the penalty, took your shame, and now He invites you to meet Him there. And if you'll meet Him at the cross, you'll find there's a living water there. There's a well that never runs dry. There's a satisfaction that you can't get anywhere else in your life, and you can't pay Him for it. He offers this water without cost to you. You come, You simply say, Jesus, I confess that I believe that you died for my sin, for my separation and my shame. I believe that God raised you from the dead on the third day. Jesus, I confess that the things I've sought to satisfy, it's been like eating fruit from the forbidden tree and all it does is break me further. I confess that I need you. If you'll do that, Jesus will give you living water spring up to eternal life you'll be right with God you'll be satisfied in Him would you close your eyes for just a moment if you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus but you have come to Him and asked Him for that living water by faith, putting your trust in Him putting your faith in Him I'm going to ask you this morning that you would do something simple just as a way to respond to say I'm meeting Jesus at the well I'm meeting Him at the cross and that's this, that if you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus and you want to meet Him there today you want to give your life to Christ. You want to confess that he's Lord. You want to believe him for living water. I'm going to ask if you would just lift up your hand. If that's you, you know you haven't met him there. You don't know that satisfaction. You know you're a broken vessel. You want to come to Jesus today to be healed. You want to come to him to receive living water. Thank you. Is there anybody else? Thank you. Oh, wait just a moment. Don't let the enemy, don't let, don't let your, the voice in your head convince you that you're too shameful. Jesus won't accept you. He's come to sit at your well today. You're here because he wants you here. You're hearing this message because he wanted you to hear it. It's no coincidence. It was no coincidence 2,000 years ago that Jesus sat, sat by a well at noon in Samaria. Today he's come to meet you at your noon in your Samaria at your place of brokenness. Is there anybody else? I'm going to pray this prayer. This prayer can't save you. It's not my words. Jesus saves you. I just want to help you express faith in Jesus, express that you want that living water. And so I'm going to pray. And as I pray, would you make this prayer yours? You just, even if you want to, you could pray out loud and and pray to Jesus, but just ask him, Lord, give me that living water. Would you make this prayer yours? Heavenly Father, I come to you today in the name of Jesus, and I confess that I'm a broken vessel. I've tried to scoop up water so many times and gone to the same place over and over again. It can't seem to satisfy me. Jesus, I I know today that that's sin, that's wrong, and that it's just separated me from you, but I thank you so much, Jesus, that you came to the well today. I thank you that though I had tried to keep you away from me, that you wouldn't stay away, and you came to the well today to sit, and I, I've heard your word. I believe it. I believe you died for me. I believe you were raised from the dead. I believe you're the source of satisfaction in life, and I'm just asking you, Jesus, would you let me drink from you today? Would you give me a drink that satisfies? I'm not satisfied, Jesus. I'm broken. I'm bitter. And I don't know where to turn. But today I turn to you. And I ask you to satisfy me with living water. I pray that you'd help me from now on not to return to the old wells. Help me to just stay with you. Help me to walk with you. And teach me what it means to walk in eternal life. I love you, Lord. I Thank you for that. I believe in you from this day on, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna ask if our prayer partners and pastors, if you're available, would come forward because we wanna prepare to pray with people. Believer, maybe today as you've heard the message, you would say, I, I think there, there are some things here for me. I think that maybe I've, I've been putting walls around my worship and my worship doesn't carry over from when I leave this place. I think that worship is about what I sing on a Sunday, but it's not about how I live throughout the week. And today you want to say, Lord, help me to live for you a life of worship. Maybe maybe you'd say, I don't think I've been participating in harvest. I haven't lifted my eyes. Up. I, I think people are hardened against the Lord and, and I haven't seen how he's bringing people to him and maybe he wants to use me and I want to ask him, open my eyes, Jesus. Open my eyes to see the harvest. And you just want to come and, and pray that. Today, There's a well where you can meet Jesus because a well can be an altar, can't it? A well can be a place where Jesus meets us and heals us even as believers. I'm not telling you question your salvation or something like that. I'm saying even for believers, there are sometimes places where we try to go back to and dip into that don't satisfy. We need to bring those things to him and say, Jesus, I remember today you're the satisfaction. And if that's you, why don't you make a, a altar at a well today? and say, Jesus, thank you for meeting me here where I needed you most. And I'm listening, Holy Spirit, to how you're directing my life. Would you stand with me? Stand with me right now. As I begin to pray, if that's you, if you want to come in and kneel or you want to pray with one of our prayer partners, please come as I pray. Or perhaps today you raised your hand and said you wanted to know Jesus, the living water. If you raised your hand, I'd encourage you to come and speak with one of our prayer partners. They have something they want to give you to help you to know how do you follow Jesus from here. But as I pray, would you make an altar at a well and let the Holy Spirit minister to you today as you seek Him. Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, we come to you this morning. We thank you so much that you have provided us the living water, the source of real satisfaction for our lives. We confess to you today that we're broken. Lord, we're broken without you and sometimes we're going back to try to hold water, old water in our hands and it's slipping through. We're trying to get satisfaction from the things of this world. Lord, we've returned to old habits, old haunts, old sins. And Lord, we ask that you would cleanse us and purify us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us as your people not to continue to go back to the things that cannot satisfy, but help us to stick with you. Lord, help us not to go back to drinking from wells that are broken cisterns, but to drink of the living water that you provide. Lord, we pray that as a church, you would help us to lift up our eyes. Lord, there's a harvest you wanna bring in. We confess that sometimes our eyes have been cast down with doubts and fears, with being taken up with worldly things, consumed with physical things, worried about the stuff of life. Rather than, rather than concerned with the things of Jesus. We confess, Lord, that sometimes we've missed the harvest as a result. And we ask, Lord, that today you'd lift up our eyes and help us to see with clarity there's a harvest that needs to be brought in. And I ask that you would help us not to be a church that lets the harvest rot in the field. Lord, I pray that you would stir up such a spirit in us of conviction and of urgency. Lord, that we would see with spiritual eyes that there are spiritually hurting people gathering around all kinds of broken cisterns, and they need someone who has the living water welling up in them to tell them that there is a source of satisfaction and of joy and of peace that they don't know about, but that they can know him just like we know him, because we were once those people at broken wells, and Lord, I ask that you would help us not to keep this good news to ourselves. Lord, send your spirit to fill us with a boldness, a conviction, and a courage to accomplish what you want to in this valley. And we pray, Lord, together, bring in your harvest. Bring in the harvest of souls that you desire. Help us to see the seeds that you have sown and not allow them to lie there rotting, but to bring in the harvest. Lord, we love you. We thank you for that. We trust you to do it in us. And we praise you because you're at work among your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray and we believe. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to continue in prayer, the altar is open. Jesus is still here. Please, you don't have to rush out. Find a place to pray. Otherwise, we will see you on Wednesday as we continue in prayer together. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.